But it all leads into where Paul takes us this week in chapter 3 in the first four verses. So then, hear the word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word that is living and true. We come this morning to sit at your feet and to hear from you. And we pray that your voice would be that which is heard. Father, help us to not be those who simply gather information, but those who by the power of your spirit experience transformation. That our hearts and our minds would be changed, raised from the dead, renewed in the image of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Last week we talked about legalism as a, pro, uh, a false approach to spirituality, to the spiritual life. And the reason that it is a false approach is because the law does not have the power to actually change us. It does not have the power to transform us, which is the goal of the spiritual life in knowing Christ, who is the very image of God, is that we should be conformed to his image, that we should be transformed, and the law doesn't have the power to do it, to accomplish it. And so legalism takes several forms in the life of the church, in our lives, and two of the most common are, uh, one is, is that some of us will reduce the Christian life to its rules and regulations, right? That we, that we, under a sense of duty or a sense of obligation, as a, as a way of life, we reduce the Christian life to a bunch of rules, and we feel that God is pleased with us when we keep the rules, and so maybe we'll make some extra rules, and he'll be extra pleased with us as we keep those rules. And, and so we live before him in this treadmill of rules and regs that we try to perform before him. There's little relationship with God. It's more about the lifestyle and an effort to win his favor by doing well and then experiencing that doubt when we don't do so well. But it also can take the form of simply adding our own rules to God's law. And this is one of the probably most common that we talked about last time is simply adding our rules to his rules. So we got a bigger and longer rule book. Acting then, not only are we adding the rules to his rules, but we begin acting as if they're his rules. We begin promoting them to other people as if they're his rules. The things that we have decided that the scripture hasn't stated, things that we require that God hasn't required, we begin to require them of ourselves and others as if they were God's. R.C. Sproul says it this way, legalism adds our own rules to God's law, and then treats them as divine. It's the most common and deadly form 
of legalism. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees on this very point. You teach human traditions as if they were the word of God. But we have no right to heap up restrictions on people where he has not, or he has no stated restrictions. In other words, we load people's consciences with the weight of our expectations. And I say all this because it is not a matter of indifference. And this is where Paul goes with it. It's what he was trying to say last week in that section and as he moves this week. It's not a matter of difference. At stake is the purity of the gospel as you read the whole book. At stake is the purity of the gospel, right? And the glory and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as the center and the source of our spiritual life. At stake is our relationship with Jesus, and I, I quoted it last week. I've quoted it probably every sermon since we've talked about it because I believe it is at the heart of this book. The heart of what Paul is writing in the book of Colossians is in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where it, where it exalts Christ and it says, For in him all the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. Right? That, that is the heart of the reality of a Christian life, that he who is the whole fullness of God has filled you, has come to dwell in our lives. We are filled in him and by him who himself is filled by deity. And so Paul is, wants to know, Paul is trying to say, what, what more do you need? What more could you possibly want? Why do we look elsewhere? Why do we have to make things up and to create things? Why do we put our focus anywhere but on Jesus? Why be puffed up about angels and religious practices and festivals and traditions and human rules and regulations when you have Christ, the very fullness of God, filling you and your life? These other things, they have that appearance of wisdom that he talked about last week. They have the appearance of wisdom. But in the last verse of that section, verse 23, leading into ours, he said that, that these things have the appearance of wisdom in, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and a severity to the body. And in, in our, But here's the thing. They have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They have no power to transform us. Rules and regs and the law has no power to set us free. That's why Romans 1 starts out saying, you know, what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son. And the power then is in, is in Christ. And, 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 and the goal is to stop the indulgence of the flesh. All of this about legalism isn't to, and to go into license and lawlessness. You know, that's, that's not the point at all. He wants the indulgence of the flesh to stop. He wants us to walk in the Spirit and to be free from the power of the flesh. That is still the goal. A holy life like Christ. But the question is, where is the power for that life? And the answer is, it's not in the law. It is in Christ himself and only in Christ 
And so he spends most of the rest of the letter, and we'll see this story next week, you know, talking about a, a holy life, directions for a holy life. Verse 5 starts out with, put to death everything that is earthly in you, and that whole nature. And then he's going to go on later and say, put on Christ in a whole new life. And he's going to say, this is his, his point, is the, the transforming of our lives as the people of God and followers of Christ. There is hard work to be done. There are lives to be changed, but the power of a new life, he's going to say, he just keeps putting Jesus at us, pressing Jesus upon us. The living person of Christ who is full of divine power for your life. And so he keeps telling us, after telling us to stop making rules and Stop making up laws and, and traditions and things that help you feel like you're pleasing God. They are powerless. And then he immediately goes into these four verses. He says in verse 1 that if, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Verse 2, he says, set your minds on the things that are above where Christ is. Because he's what you need. Set your hearts, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And when he says set them on things above where Christ is, there's a, it's, the things above is metaphorical in the sense that it's not necessarily up. You know, if you're on the other side of the world, what's up? But the whole point is there is a sense in that he reigns over us. And so he says that we are to set our minds on things above where Christ reigns at the right hand of the Father, we are to look to the risen Christ for the power we need, for the life that we desire, to fulfill all that God desires of us, not to look to the law per se, but to look to Christ. And I will say that the law is a good guide to holiness. It does present the, the holy life. It does present what is right and true and good. It just doesn't have the power in itself to help us become it. And, and to become it, we need to live in, through, and out of Jesus, our hope, our affections, our love, our heart, mind, soul, and strength should be focused, fixed on Jesus. That's what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us, doesn't it? To, to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. There is a race, and we are to run, and there is an endurance. There is work to be done, and he says, but when you run it, Look to Jesus for the grace and the power and the ability to run such a race. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. All the law in the world will not purify your soul. All the rules in the world, if you had them laid out in a big volume in front of you, will not purify your soul and make you like Jesus. It may give you some direction, but it will give you no power. Only in the present and daily experience of the mastery of Jesus Christ in our lives are we enabled to live free of the mastery of other things. Right? It is the presence and the power of Christ and his reigning fullness of divine power that will free us from the power of other things. And the more we try to law it out and legal it out, it's a, it's a recipe for despair. 
And so he says in this whole text, he is bringing us into what we need to understand is our union with Christ. The title of the sermon in this point is, uh, is union with Christ is the heart of the Christian life, the source of the Christian life, the very essence in, of the Christian life. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And so he says in verse 1, if, if then you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is raised, where you are raised with Christ. The NIV actually starts this verse not with the word if, but with the word since. And that's a, that's a valid thing. In fact, that's what Paul is driving at. The force of this rhetorical if you've been raised with Christ is not to raise doubt as to whether you've been raised with Christ, but actually to raise the reality of your resurrection with Christ to press on you the need for you to seek him. Because you've been raised with him. All right, so I would say something like this. If we're Christians, not questioning that we're Christians, but, but to raise that in front of you, that then there are, there are things, there are thens that follow that. If, there, if we are Christians, then you should pray. And I'm not questioning whether you're Christians. I am, I'm asking, then why don't we live like Christians and pray? Right? Why don't we talk to God? Right? Just, and he's saying, if we are raised with Christ, not to say, are we, but to say, but, but since we're raised with Christ, why aren't we seeking him? Why aren't we seeking the things that are above? Why are we focused on all the, why aren't we seeking him? He does the same thing in chapter 2, if you go back to verse 20. He says, if with Christ you died. Not asking, you know, I wonder if you did or not. He's saying, if with Christ we died to the elemental spirits of the world, to the powers of the world, then why then? Why are we still submitting to the powers of the world and do not touch and do not touch and do not handle in all of its rules and all of its regs? Why are we, why, if we are dead to these things in Christ, why do we not live like it? Paul is teaching us the doctrine of union with Christ. And in every, if you read any book on a Reformed view, our tradition's view of sanctification, of a life of transformation, every one of them at the heart of its understanding of the sanctification of life is union with Christ. Because the new life that you need and you want, that God is commanding and seeking in you, is found nowhere else but in the person. The living, resurrected, fullness of God, person of Jesus, is the source of the life you need. And we are, in Paul's teaching, that we're united to him by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, filling the lives of his people. And what that means is that you have a shared life with Christ. If you don't know and understand this, and you will, you will never make the progress in, in your Christian life and holiness that you want to, at least you should want to, if you are in Christ, this shared life with him because you are connected to Christ in his life. I quoted last week from John 14, 20. I'll do it again. He says, in that day that you will know, and he wants you to know, in that day, this day when, when the scriptures are yours and all this stuff becomes clear, and when all this stuff becomes clear, there's something you ought to know, something that will become clear to you. You should know that he, Jesus, is in the Father, and you, Christian, are in him, and he is in you. You are in him, and he is in you, and he is in the Father. 
And there is this mutual indwelling of your lives, that your life is tied up, connected to, in an indissoluble way, by the presence and power of his spirit that is taking up residence in you with him. So that he could say in verse 3, Christ, or verse 4, Christ, who is your life. And so in John 15, that's John 14, and then, and then you'll see then the first half of John 15 is the whole, is the whole presentation of, of the metaphor of the vine and the branches, right? It's illustrating what he just said in chapter 14, that that day you'll know that I'm in you and you are in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Let me give you a picture of what that looks like. You know, there's a vine, and it's flowing with the sap of life, you know, that's there, the stuff of life, and the branch, when it is abiding in, connected to the vine, the sap of life in the vine flows into the branch and causes it to live and bear fruit, right? He says, so so let me give you a picture. This is the Christian life. You connected to Jesus in such a life-giving, sap-flowing way that your life bears fruit like his. The image of the Christian life sharing and participating in the fullness of the eternal life and the redemptive work that is in Christ. Galatians 3.27 says, As many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptized here is not water baptism. It's a mistake that we make all the time reading water baptism and every time it says baptism. But, but when it says you've been baptized into Christ, he's talking about that outpouring, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that when the Spirit of Christ comes in you, right, then you have been baptized, connected to, put on in, in a way, Christ. It's a spiritual reality. The water baptism pictures it, and, and it is an outward sign of this inward reality that, that in the outpouring of the Spirit, you have put on Christ and been baptized into him. We have a shared life with Christ. You, Christian, are united to Christ. Then in his whole redemptive work, which is what this passage and so many others tell us in every way. It tells you you're united to Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his sitting at the right hand of the Father, that in your connection to his shared life, then you, all of his redemptive work, you're connected to it in such a way that when he died, you died. And when he was buried, your old life was put in the grave. And when he rose, you rose. And as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, you too have a seat there. It's even hard to say out loud, but we know that it's true in so many ways. We'll get there in a second. Galatians 2.20, back there it says, if you with Christ died. In verse 1, if you've been raised up. Verse 3, that you died. That is with Christ. You're united to Christ in his death, in his resurrection. Romans 6, 4 says, When you were buried with him by baptism into death, again, spiritual baptism, not water baptism. If it's water baptism, then water baptism saves you. And if you haven't done it, you ought to do it because it saves you. But we would say it's not water baptism that saves you. It's spirit baptism that saves you. 
And so we know this happens when, when you're baptized with the Spirit because it's the outpouring, literally, of the life of Christ and of the Spirit of God into the life of a believer, causing him to be raised from the dead. And so we were buried with him through baptism into his death. When, his spirit and his share, when we begin to share his life by that Spirit, we die with him and are buried with him and are raised with him and are seated with him, you know, just... As Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too share in, participate in a new life. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, he made us alive together with Christ. When? When he gave us his spirit, he made us alive. It's called regeneration, the new birth. He made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him together. And because, believer, you are dead and buried and raised and resurrected and seated in glory, then verse 3 is absolutely true. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have a new and eternal life. And it's been hidden and stored away safely for you. It's an accomplished spiritual fact. As real as any other fact. It's true this moment. And it's one of the most important facts of your life. And on that day you should know. That you are in him. And he is in you. And the two of you together. Because he takes you there with him. Are in God. At his right hand. And so no wonder he says, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand. There is your inheritance. There is the source of your life. There is where the branch needs to abide and connect in order for the sap of life to flow. There is what we need, your birthright. That's why in John 15, 4, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, no matter how many laws it puts upon itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You need Jesus. Not as a proposition in your head, but as a vine, a living vine full of the sap of life. You need him as an indwelling present and powerful and gracious Savior. So some of the so what's on all of this is so what's in application and, um, you know, comes in some of the verbs that are there, which is to seek the things that are above and to set your mind on the things that are above. But before we, we touch those, I would first give you just a couple other applications for your, your, your comfort and security. Because you are secure, and that's one of the things you should pull from here, the security of the believer. The the manifestation of God's love for you, that he would connect your life to Jesus. Your life connected to Jesus. And where did Christ put that life for safekeeping? Where is it? He says it's for safekeeping is hidden in God. Let me just ask you, where is a safer place in the universe? For the safekeeping 
of your eternal life. The very bosom of God is where your life abides, safe and secure. And so it not only is a sense of security, but it's then a source of hope because that security now, that, that he says it is secure now, hidden with Christ in God, is, is then the hope and the glory that will re, be revealed later, which is what he says in the very next sense. We share his life now and forever. Just as he died and rose and was raised and at the right hand of Father and your life is there with him, so when he appears Again, from glory, you also will appear with him. Your destiny, your future, your hope. And he wants this, and what Paul does in every other one of his letters, is Paul lives this and applies this. It changes everything. That's why Paul can say, for me to live is Christ. Because I abide in him and his life flows in my veins. He is my source of daily life. But for me to live is Christ and to die, well... Gain. And so what can harm me? Right? I can live and it's, and, it's, and it's Christ and I can die and it's Christ and it's glory. You can, you can take anything from me. You can do anything in a sense to me. My life is hidden with Christ in God and when he appears, so will I. You can have the rest of it. And if Christ is your life, then the obvious thing should be quit looking for it anywhere else. Quit putting your hope in anything else. Quit focusing on anything else. Not even on God's law. Don't get me wrong, we teach it and we want to understand it. And as I said, it is a pattern for holiness. It is a pattern of things we need to understand, of what it looks like, you know, that, to, to be like Christ. But when then we look away from the law and we say... You know, oh Christ, make me like you. Fill me with your spirit. Forgive me for my sin. Transform my heart. Set me free from the, the slavery to these other things. Make me a new man. And as we daily wrestle with him over those things, that is where the obedience to the law comes, is the freedom of the soul from the mastery of those things that end up obeying it. But the freedom from the mastery of those things is not in simply trying not to do it. It's in the Christ life that is in us and the relationship that we bear to him, and the gifts that will flow into our life that will enable us day by day, more by more, glory to glory, to be the man or the woman he wants us to be. And so we don't submit to human regulations, and we don't let anyone judge us according to all that junk, and we don't let anyone tell us we're disqualified because we're not keeping their rules. We, we abide in Christ who alone is master of my conscience and Lord of my soul and the source of my life. So how do we let that life that is hidden with Christ in God be our daily life? To live daily in the power of that life that is hidden with God in Christ, the life I so desperately want and need. Thomas Manton said, without seeking God often, the vitality of the soul is lost. And whatever we, and I'll put some feet on it, I guess, but again and again, the scripture says, seek him. 
What Paul says, the answer for Paul for all of this is don't do, don't let them judge you, don't do this, don't do that, don't focus on the law, don't try to create it yourself. Christ is your life. Seek him. Set your mind on him. Set your mind on those things and go after him. The veil is rent, the way is open. Your life is in Christ. So what will it look like for you to seek him, to abide in him? I like in verse 1 where it says, seek the things that are above. The NIV not only says, since you have been raised, it says, set your heart on things above. And I like that because it pulls together. Because when, when you seek something, it's really when you set your heart on something. Like if I, if I have set my heart on being a, uh, you know, a, a gold medalist, I'm going to set my mind on those things that will help me accomplish that end. You know, but whatever we set our hearts on, is that what we will seek? You seek and you go after what your heart is set on. And so those go together. I like that. Then verse 1 says, set your heart on the things that are above. And verse 2 says, set your mind on the things that are above. And whatever you set your heart on, put your mind to it. Bend all the powers and faculties of your life toward it. If you want to see it accomplished, he says, seek me and you will find me. Romans 5.8 says this. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. What fills your mind and is it set on day by day? And is enough of your day or enough of your life or enough of the way that you've structured your whole response to God show that your mind is set on knowing and experiencing the living Christ? Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Do you? It's your resurrection too. Do you want to, I want to know him. And I want to know to experience the power of that resurrection. So that it is my resurrection. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is going to be hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. It cannot submit to his law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But those who are in the spirit. Which is why he says the command comes to us. Be full of the spirit. Let the sap of the vine flow into you and into your life. And so to set the mind and to set the heart on the things of Christ, when you start getting down and dirty, has a lot to do about the way you prioritize your life and, and what you do and what you don't do, what you choose and what you don't choose, what you feed on and feed your soul and your mind on, garbage in, garbage out. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says this. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. The one who sows to the flesh, from the flesh, will reap destruction, corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit, will reap eternal life. So I put all these together, abide in Christ, seek Christ, set your mind on Christ, 
So to the Spirit, so to, to the things that are above, to Christ. And one who sows to those things from that investment in seeking and, and in that life and relationship, from that life and relationship will, lead, will reap life and peace. But if the greater part of our sowing, we will reap what we sow. God, God won't be mocked. No, it's just a law of the universe. So to the Spirit. Set your mind. Be in the Scripture. Where do we know Him? How do we you know, hear Him speak into our souls and challenge us and convict us and to call us and to comfort us and to love us, but His Word regularly feeding in the souls. And so to be in the Scripture, sit under teaching, to be reading, to be listening, to seek opportunities, to seek. It's choices, it's habits. It's feeding. At the risk of being legalistic, I'll simply end saying this then. You must spend time with Jesus. You need Jesus. You need his life. The fullness of his spirit. You need to abide in him and to look to him and to daily seek him and to pray, to talk to him, to ask and to seek and to knock so that you will see answers and doors open and freedom from sin and, and, and a fullness of new life. You know, that passage in Revelation 3 that's so often quoted to non-Christians, Revelation 3.20, where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door, I will come into him. And I will sup with him, fellowship with him, and he with me. That verse is not to unbelievers. It's a verse written to the church. right? It's in the letter to the churches. In the opening chapters, he stands at the door of the church, at the, at the door of our souls, and he's knocking and saying, if you will open your soul to me, we will have a fellowship together. I will sup with you. I will share life with you and you with me. And everything that those letters in the opening chapters of Revelation say, I have this against you. And, and the answer to the things he has against us is, I'm at the door. Let me into the deep places of your soul in a fellowship that is the source of your life. And everything that God wants from you and that you want for yourself. I love the image in Psalm 1. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water. That yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers, right? That's Jesus. And if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. It's this tree. Only there it's the branch and the vine and you will bear much fruit and here it's the tree by the stream and you will bear much fruit. But there it is the same thing, the, the, the branch into the vine drawing the sap of life, the tree with its roots going down to the stream of life, of living water and drawing its life out of it. And the one who draws life from there, his leaf will be green and he will prosper, he will bear fruit. And my friends, when Christ becomes that stream, along which we wander and draw life and power, then we will begin to experience the life that he's talking about. Abiding in him. As the deer pants for the streams of water, 
So my soul thirsts after, seeks after you and you alone, O God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not just give us a law and tell us what to do. You gave us a Christ, your own son, the fullness of our God in bodily form as our Savior, our King, and by your grace that you would unite us to him. Father, I pray that today we would know that we are in him and that he is in us and that we together have our life hidden in you for now and eternity. And we pray, O oh God, that that life, that Christ life, that eternal life, that resurrection life would flow into ours in a newness of life and power. Teach us what it means to seek him and to abide in him in a real way, a genuine way, a heart-changing, life-transforming way. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.